Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training five secrets to taking a break from drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today we are talking about holiday season anxiety and how to cope with family stress. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Weiner. He's a board certified psychologist and an addiction specialist, and he speaks nationally on topics of addiction and behavioral health and the impact of drug policy on public health. His perspective is informed by his years of experience growing and directing addiction service lines for hospitals and healthcare systems. And Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Oh my gosh. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, we met because we were both part of a New York Times article on the best quitlet to read if you want to take a break from drinking or quit completely. And another podcaster, a friend of mine, Mary Tilson, who does the Sun and Moon Sober Living podcast, had interviewed you and said you were fantastic. So I'm glad we got to meet through that contact. 
Thank you. That's incredibly kind uh, of you and of her. And I'm just excited to, to talk with you and, and was to meet you. You know, it was it's always an honor to be able to contribute to articles like that that can help hopefully a lot of people. And I, I know I always look at the list of folks who are there, too, being like, "Ooh, these are these are probably people I'd, I'd like to know. And you're doing fantastic work as well. Yeah. Well, so when we got together to talk about different things, what I loved was your writing and your expertise and the work you've done around coping with family stress, especially with the holiday season coming up and anxiety around that is a really big challenge if you are navigating life without alcohol. I know a lot of us are used to drinking around the holidays, not just because they're celebrations, it's a traditional time of parties and gatherings and dinners with alcohol, but also if you are traveling to see family members or if family members are coming to stay with you, it's a lot of personalities. There's some conflict. You're not used to people. So I think this is going to be a really useful conversation. Yeah. Well, that's, as I'm sure you and, and, and your audience knows, drinking is at its core a coping strategy. It's a way of trying to get through stressful times. And the holidays are really stressful for a lot of folks. And so if you've taken away that coping mechanism, because it's ultimately very unhealthy for you, you're still left with the stress and, and you've got to figure out a way to, to deal with that effectively. Or either one, it'll just kind of suck or, or two, it can lead you maybe back to drinking when you don't want to. So we're really yeah. happy to have this conversation today. Well, so what are the first steps that someone might want to take if the holidays are coming up and they know, you know, you're either traveling or someone's staying with you and it's typically a difficult time? In addition to being awesome, but still hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, like they're double, double-edged sword, right? Like so many things in life. You know, the if I had to distill it down to one idea, it would be to plan and to go into it not feeling like you're shooting from the hip or you're just holding on for dear life or you're hoping that it will be okay. Much like when we talk with folks about how do you make it through any challenging circumstance where it might be hard not to drink. Planning ahead, knowing where your triggers are, your vulnerabilities, setting yourself up for success. The same general structure applies to dealing with a stressful situation like this. And I know we'll get more into the how do you do that because mm -hmm. you know it's great to say, well, plan ahead. Well, well then, then what do you plan? Um, that matters too. But really being thoughtful, not going into it, improvising, it goes a yeah. real long way. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one of the things I love to do with my clients when the holiday season is coming up is to literally go through the exercise of what do you love about the season? What is hard for you? Or what do you dislike about the season? Who do you want to spend time with? And what are situations where you typically would drink or it would be hard for you not to drink is just a starting point of getting down on paper, the good stuff that you want to optimize and the hard stuff that you need a plan for. Yeah. Well, so you, you bring up a really excellent point, which is that whatever we focus on, we tend to magnify mm -hmm. and whatever we turn away from, we don't necessarily hold our gaze to tends to get smaller. And one of the issues with stress or stressful circumstances, like if you have this like I'm going to see my family and that's looming over me like this ominous cloud is that you tend to fixate on it. And maybe you make it out in your mind to be even worse than it's going to be or even just 
all that real estate that it's taking up in your consciousness, that ends up amplifying the feeling, boxing out those things that you might really like about the season and ultimately be energy that you could be spending maybe planning in a more productive way or coping in a more productive way, but setting you up again for, for success. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that one of the things that I like to do once you have your list down is to the things that are really difficult for you or the things that make you want to drink or that typically are drinking activities to, you know, question whether you have to do it the way you've always done it or if you can shift it in some way. And I'm talking including staying with your parents, you know, or having Mm. the entire family stay with you. There are amazing Airbnbs and hotels for a very good reason. Right. Well, so maybe we should dive in a little bit. Let's dive in. in, in, Into the house. So you bring up Airbnbs, people staying with you or people not staying with you. One of the biggest traps that we fall into with family is that we feel like we have to either directly continue on patterns that have not worked for us in the past or roles that we've had in our family unit that maybe we felt like we needed to do or it's just what feels comfortable but ultimately are causing us problems, perhaps, again, like alcohol used to, where it felt comfortable, but it was actually causing more problems than it was worth. And so if truly you need personal space or having everyone at the house is a problem, if what you've been doing causes problems, it is actually okay to say, family, mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever it is, I love you, I want to see you, and this is overwhelming for me. Or like this particular dynamic doesn't work for me. And and feeling comfortable, confident, empowered to say something like that, to set a boundary for something that would be healthy for you, does a couple of things. One is that you might actually set that boundary and the whole situation gets healthier for you. But two, it gives you a measure of freedom because feeling trapped is another huge stressor. We don't like to feel like we're backed in a corner. There's nothing that we can do. This is just going to happen to us. That feels terrible, but sometimes we rob ourselves of our own agency where we do have the ability to say, you know, I really don't want to do that. And the, mm-hmm. the moment you realize that it may, maybe it feels like a prison, but the, but the door is open and you actually can walk out and build a new pattern, just knowing that that option is there can turn down the, the, the temperature a little bit on the stress and the anxiety because you know you're not trapped. Yeah. And that's, hard sometimes, right? I'm just thinking of myself and what I know other people kind of put themselves through, right? You get into the situation where you're like, oh, my mom's a widow, or I don't want to hurt their feelings, or I rarely go home and they want to spend time with the grandkids, or, you know, I'm their daughter, I should you know, they're not going to be around for that long, right? All that, that guilt, that obligation, that whatever it is, or, you know, if I say anything, it's going to be a nightmare because they're either going to like go into immense guilting of me or, you know, to some extent get angry or, you know what I mean? All this stuff. Right. Well, and sometimes there's some very toxic dynamics that have been present in families, even sometimes for decades. Like, that example that you gave of if I try to set a boundary here for my own health, you know, I'm, I'm never going to hear the end of it. Or I'm going to be yeah. guilty. <laughs> I mean, if we really think about that for a second, 
what you would be doing is you would be saying to someone who you love and who theoretically and probably does love you, saying, hey, this isn't healthy for me. Can we please do something different? Yeah. And then the response, if the response actually is, how could you? You're being so self, like, you're being so selfish. What about me, 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 me? Like, wait a second, right? It's like that. That's actually not. Yeah, like that. That's not actually what healthy love looks like, anyway, right? Like, if someone you love says this is hurting me, then a healthy response would be, "Oh my gosh, okay." Like maybe you're a little disappointed, but you don't want someone to hurt who you love, and so you're you're going to work to try to make it okay for them. And that's not to say that if someone you know, a family member has that response that they're a bad person or you should never talk to them again. But it does sometimes put into perspective, like, am I doing this because it's good for me? Am I doing this because kind of being like passively blackmailed? Um, if it's the latter, is that how I want this relationship to function? Because yeah. the more you engage in that pattern, the more hardwired it gets. And just about any pattern can be shaped and changed over time as long as the two parties involved actually want to be in each other's life. Yeah. And sometimes it's just figuring out what is the most important thing to the other person. And also just realizing that small shifts, in my experience, can help a lot. So do you have to go for an entire week? Or can you go for four days or three days? You know, I find that phrasing it sometimes in a different way being like, Oh, so excited to come home. But I would love to show my family this area of town. So we're going to spend three nights with you and then we're going to go check out this other area. Mm -hmm. Or I know my, my mom really wanted my family to fly to Ohio and it was just a big thing. And finally I had to really just ask her to be like, what is the most important thing? What's important to you about this? And turns out the most important thing to her was my niece who was 20 and my daughter who was seven getting to know each other. So I was like, all right, we can work around that. But, you know, she was proposing initially both families getting together for a week at a resort that nobody wanted to do, you know? Right. Well, and even I would say not to like push back on, on your mom at all, but you know, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say that she gets to make the decision about what's best for your daughter or for her niece. You know, it's not to say that she can't have preferences or suggest things or have great ideas, but ultimately I think whenever anybody really starts to, to put their needs in front of other people's, right? Mm -hmm. Like if someone says, I'm uncomfortable with that. And the other person says, well, too bad, you know, I don't think you're allowed to do that <laughs> personally. I think particularly in like healthy adult relationships, you know, like everyone is actually allowed to be okay. You know, like yeah. we, we can all be okay and we can find compromises. And if someone's going to be very upset that you just want to feel okay, then okay. Well, they might just have to deal with those feelings. You could give in, mm -hmm. but, but then you have to be the one to carry that burden which might not actually ultimately be either appropriate or best and might perpetuate a toxic pattern. Yeah. And one thing I find with the women I work with is sort of the very deep pull to not inconvenience anyone else. I mean, sometimes I'll hear, well, this is my problem. And I don't want anyone else to have to shift what they do. 
to accommodate me or I don't want them to know it's as hard for me as it is if they sit around drinking multiple bottles of wine in front of me when I'm not drinking. And one of the things I always try to remind them of is this is your vacation too. So your needs are not less than what everyone else's needs. And sometimes there can be a happy middle, you know? Right. Well, and particularly when it comes to either like behavioral health things or addiction, it's easy to marginalize yourself, particularly if you've internalized, say, some like shame and you're having trouble, you know, coming to grips with the past as you move forward into the future. Where like, say you had a family member who has like, I don't know, like celiac disease and can't have gluten. And they're like, well, I would love to come for Thanksgiving, but there can't be any stuffing or, we, you know, we can't do the traditional stuffing because... I'm really afraid of contamination. You know, like people might be like, yeah, like I don't want you to have to like go to the hospital or be in the bathroom all night. Like, well, we'll make dietary shifts for you um, mm -hmm. because we love you and you want you to be there. We, we want you to be there. Or the flip side would be, you know, like you could say there's, there's room to both be courteous and to say, listen, I totally understand. You've got these traditions. You like to have cocktails or to drink and to have this present, have this present there. I don't know if I'm ready for that right now. Because yeah. I'm working in early recovery and this just isn't something I think I can do. And I won't be upset if you'd really like to have your holiday. But, um, you know, if I'm there, this is just, just the situation. And like any other health concern, I think it's very possible to one, feel comfortable and saying like, this is, this is an accommodation that yeah. I need it, at least, at least right now. Um, if not, maybe just indefinitely, but this is an accommodation. And if it doesn't work for someone, like, that's totally okay. You don't have to be angry that they might want their alcohol there if it's important to them in a tradition. But by the same token, they should be okay. They, they can be okay with you being you. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy. But one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice 
what you've wanted to change, but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. And I also think that sometimes the people in your life don't necessarily take it as seriously as you might or actually want you to drink, think you're being dramatic or hard on yourself or just are like, you know, they just don't want to lose their drinking buddy. And I think that that's hard, right? Because they're like, oh my God, you're not going to drink on New Year's. You're not going to do X, Y, Z. So in my opinion, like just phrasing it as a health and wellness choice can help as well. If you're not ready to be like, this is a health condition in the same way that if you were choosing to become a vegetarian, you would expect them to respect that. Hey, yeah. I mean, like, could you imagine if someone was like, you were going to dinner and they were like pressuring you to eat meat? Like, what do you mean you're a vegetarian? Here, have this bite. I'm going yeah. to push it in front of you. I'm going to even buy you a steak and I'm just going to watch you. That would be so I'm just going to bully you to eat meat. Yeah, that would be so mean. Yeah, there's almost yeah. like, there's some odd cultural and like our culture is oddly infused at times with alcohol and sometimes in certain situations like drug related pressures where you put that in any other context and you're like, how, why would you like blatantly disregard somebody's choice? How is that okay? Or then if someone wants to say no, uh, that they feel like they're the ones stepping over the line when they're mm-hmm. saying like, hey, I don't want to do this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, consent is important. So what are the other, I mean, there's so many dynamics to, let's just dig into family stress. Like what are the things you mm. typically see for individuals, say, yeah, anyone. I was thinking of children with parents, but it could be with a spouse or in-laws or whatever it is. Yeah, well, there's oftentimes just interpersonal patterns or preferences or uh, lack of respect for boundaries, things that are being asked of you, um, sometimes topics that are brought up. And again, there's this feeling oftentimes of being like, I have to put up with this or I'm going to be like the one causing all the drama or... yeah. Um, It'll be my fault that everything's ruined or I'll be making a scene at Christmas or, you know, what, what, whatever it is. And so people feel like they can't set the boundaries that they need to set. Um, but, but what I've found, and I should mention, so I, as a psychologist, we, we all have our theoretical orientations, ways that we go about working with folks to, uh, to do therapy. And I'm very much in the cognitive behavioral realm. I put a lot of weight on the way that we think about and engage with our world changing how we feel about it. And so a lot of times, and that's if you if we think back a few minutes to when I was speaking about what you focus on, you magnify yeah. this idea that if you're trapped, you feel more stressed. There's a lot of ways that you can look at these situations or approach them differently to just lower the level of tension inside yourself. So we already spoke about knowing that there's an exit 
that you don't have to do anything, that if, if you're just getting very angry, you actually can leave. You know, like you can, you, you can do that. You can draw boundaries. Whatever is required for you to be okay is okay. You can do that for yourself. Another trick that you can use that sometimes helps say with anger, if you find yourself getting irritated or angry at someone in your family, is to try as hard as this is sometimes to flex your empathy and curiosity muscles. Mm. Because what happens when instead of being in a judgmental mindset and saying things like, they shouldn't talk that way to me, they shouldn't think those things, they shouldn't say those things, how could they have those political views, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. If instead you think to yourself, what's informing those views? Where are they coming from? Why might they talk this way? Or if they're doing something that feels like it's either out of character or not, or just not in line with your values, ask yourself, well, where, where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. And make it in some ways less about you. And just think about where, where are they coming from? Because part of what we do when we get angry at people oftentimes is we dehumanize them. We don't think about mm -hmm. them as like, this is someone I love. This is someone I have a history with. This is someone maybe I want a relationship with. We just think someone's hurting me right now emotionally and I want it to stop right now. So I'm going to snap or I'm going to wall myself off and get really closed off and shut because that way they won't get through my armor and then I won't feel it. Whereas there's, there's other options there where you can keep yourself open without necessarily either going on the offensive or the defensive. So one was boundaries to what, uh, and stating what you need. Another one was approaching some of your people or triggers or difficult situations with curiosity and empathy. What's another technique? Cause you mentioned there are some, um, God, I, I feel like whenever I'm around my family, um, I suddenly revert to all the emotions I had at the age of 13. You know, I feel like whatever your family designated you to be as a child, somehow you could be 50 years old and they'd still put you in that same box and treat you the same way. Right. Well, well that, so, so that just takes some personal work. You've kind of got to, you've got to ahead of time. Really, and this is great to do with a therapist or journaling on your own, just thinking deeply about like what was my role in my family when I was growing up? Was I the one who made everything okay all the time? Was I the perfect one? Was I the failure? Was I the clown? Was I, you know, there's people oftentimes internalize these labels and then it, in some ways it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or if you step back and look at how you're being treated or how you're letting yourself be treated in that environment with your family versus any other place in your life, like, wait a second, I'm, I'm not like that any, anywhere else. Awareness is the first step where you've got to see the pattern. And then once you see it, you can try to essentially do the opposite. Maybe not quite so dramatic, but you can say, okay, so if I'm the one who is always being, I was always acquiescing. I'm always going along with things. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to cause trouble. Maybe that was because your parents were angry all the time or they would fight. Or maybe you found that if you did something, you calmed down the tension in the house or, or whatever it is. Um, if you can see that, then you can say, okay, so I have, the, it feels very comfortable to supplicate myself or to kind of like lay down and get walked on because that pain I'm familiar with, that disrespect mm -hmm. I'm familiar with. And even if that doesn't feel good in some ways, I know how that feels. Whereas the idea of setting a boundary feels so tremendously scary, even if 
intellectually I know there might be a payoff there. It's really hard to take that step. Knowing in advance it's not going to feel right, knowing that there's going to be all of these years of patterns that are saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's not your role. That's not for you. That's not you don't deserve those sorts of good things. You just got to know that's going to happen. But that's not because it's not the right thing to do necessarily. That's just because it's not what you're used to. Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. And, you know, in my mind, if you're if you're not drinking and you have sober momentum, which is so precious and hard to get when you're going into a holiday, it does help to anticipate that it's going to be uncomfortable that even if you like I know my first holiday, I was seven months alcohol free. And I expected it to be a breeze. My husband supported me. I was proud of myself. I felt better. My mom knew I wasn't drinking. And I still found it really hard when they brought out the wine to put on the dining room table. We hadn't had wine in our house forever. And I the next night had to be like, all right, no, that was hard. I don't want that anymore. But I was shocked at how difficult it was, not necessarily for me not to drink because I hadn't been drinking for a long time, but emotionally to navigate all of the sort of things that typically I would drink over, including, hey, it's a special night. We're having a big dinner and, you know, all that conditioning that this alcoholic beverage should pair with that. Right. It's one of the hardest things is to be patient with yourself in your recovery process and to give yourself some grace or to not even necessarily see it as a personal failure. If you have like a craving or you're feeling triggered and you're like, oh, like I'm seven months sober, I'm I'm doing great. And then you hit like a, a difficult patch. Okay. You know, like if this yeah. were easy, no one would need therapists like me or programs like yours. I mean, everyone would just be like, all right, time to make a behavioral change in my life, like not drink anymore after, you know, and they just do it. But it's, it's hard. It's really difficult. And particularly if you've had some success, when you hit those bumps in the road, even if you pop out the other side and you've met your goals, it still can be a wake up call and be like, okay, you know, like I, I'm, this is still something that very much is resting within me and is not just taking care of and all better. I think it helps to anticipate that anything you're doing for the first time without drinking will be uncomfortable and does take some planning ahead of time, no matter, no matter what it is. So certainly your first Thanksgiving, your first New Year's Eve, your first holiday, but including a cocktail party. For me, it was a white elephant party with all of our friends that we've been doing for 15 years. And it, it was the first time I wasn't drinking at it. And I did all the preparation and, you know, had my alcohol free beverages and everyone knew I wasn't drinking. I mean, all the right things. Um, and I also had to say to my husband, this is going to be really hard for me, right? I just, I'm used to drinking at this. I'm used to celebrating. But I also, like you said, like, I was curious about how it would go and how it would feel and what would be different if I didn't drink. And it was, it was good. I spent more time being present with the kids and remembered the end of the night and felt good the next morning and, you know, got to talk to all my friends. So it wasn't easy, but it was good. Yeah. And, and you bring up a really important point there too, that 
so many of us equate celebrating with drinking because that's what you know, we, we see it in the media. We might have grown up with it. Some families really have it like baked into the fabric of special occasions. And, you know, maybe for some people it, it is. Uh, but if you're in recovery or you're trying and you're shooting for sobriety, it's actually not anymore. But we can't necessarily expect because then, right, if you're if you're drinking, it's not celebrating. It's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot, right? It's, it's the opposite of celebrating in many ways. Um, but until you condition yourself in a different direction, well, like, yeah, of course, that's where your mind's going to go. It's going to be like, oh, I feel a certain way, whether or not it's happy or sad or anxious. And then I drink. And so if this is the first time you're going to the party or you're feeling a certain way and then you're not doing it, when you've had all of these hundreds perhaps, or even thousands, depending on the situation of repetitions being like, this is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's understandable. That might be, uh, that might be tough. That might be tough from, from jump. Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on as well is you've written quite a bit about the signs of anxiety and I'd love you to go through them. What I was surprised at, even though I've experienced it, is how physical a lot of them are. Like it manifests mm. in your body. It's not just mental. Yeah. So uh, anxiety is its a really interesting mental health arena because it's something that feels incredibly intense when you're in it and incredibly real. And you do feel it in your body. And that's because of, of what its purpose is and where it comes from. But ultimately, it's all also just an appraisal, seeing seeing danger. So let me back up for a second. So yeah. basically, what anxiety and fear is about is it's your body's way of trying to keep you safe. It is, you know, the if you take it to a 10, it's the fight or flight response, the fear response, where you're either, you see danger, like imagine you're like, you're cave people and we're like out there and you see a saber-toothed tiger or may maybe the, those didn't, <laughs> didn't exist at the same time but let's say they do like in ice age and, and you see that that saber-toothed tiger well you've got to be able to either fight it off you know your body has to your heart has to speed up you've got to have all that that blood rushing to your heart you like do, do muscles intense so that you can fight it off or to run away to keep yourself safe and that that's a very natural response to a danger and the thing about our bodies are in our brains is that we have that same I'm in physical danger response, regardless of whether or not what we're afraid of is actually a physical danger, or if it's a threat to our ego, or our bank account, or our family system, or our health, or any number, you know, of, of different things and health, you know, not in the like immediate death, but maybe even losing your sobriety can cause a lot of anxiety. And so we react to all of it, though, with the same sort of physiological tension and feeling because that's all our brain knows how to do. But it all comes back to this question of, do you perceive danger? Do you think something bad's going to happen? Because that's what anxiety is about. It's you looking into the future and saying, oh, like, I think I'm going to be in danger. So I'm going to be kind of like on guard. I'm going to watch out for that danger. I'm going to narrow my scope of attention so that it doesn't sneak up on me like that like that tiger. It's all based on this idea of your brain trying to keep you safe. The problem is a lot of times that process, although maybe would work great thousands of years ago, does not work so well for us now in modern life. And when we're trying to navigate social situations or work situations or the holidays, it actually causes more harm than good. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the, I mean, I remember, I think this was more of a panic attack, but, you know, there was a point and it was also when I was drinking, which I think exacerbates that to the nth degree. But I remember just laying up in my bed in the dark at like 7 p.m. And I felt like I was tingling, like all over. I was tingling. And my husband's like, what is wrong with, I took it as what's wrong with you. You know, he was like trying to solve all my issues. Like, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you do that? And I was like, I'm just trying to like literally last through this moment, you know? What do you suggest in those situations? Like if it gets to that extent. Yeah. Well, so the first thing I'll say is that there's no necessarily quick fix for panic attacks, particularly ones that just come out of the blue. Like there's some folks where it's not even prompted by something that you think is really scary, like social situation or public speaking or flying on planes or spiders or bug. (laughs) If you're listening to the podcast, I raised my hand for spiders. Those are, those are pretty rough for me. Um, <laughs> but it, it, but it, but it just happens. It just happens and it comes and it feels awful and, uh, it just comes in waves. So there's no quick fix, but there definitely are very viable fixes. And it usually involves a couple different ingredients. The first is to recognize what you're actually going through. A lot of times when people have panic attacks, they think either they're actually in danger, like I'm going to have a heart attack or I'm going to stroke out or I'm going to like actually like lose touch with reality and have a psychotic break. And those things will not happen with a, with a panic attack. It's not, not going to happen in 99.99999999% of cases. It's, it's just your body trying to make you be able to fight off the tar, the, the tiger or to run away. And so knowing what you're going through is really important. Being able to keep that perspective. The second part is very helpful is to recognize what it's trying to do, but then teach your brain something different. I'm going to bridge over here for a second to the more prompted panic attacks where you're just really stressed out or there's something you're, you're afraid of. What's happening is that your your brain is basically saying, I'm going to send you these signals to run away and to avoid this situation. Because by avoiding the situation, what you're afraid of is not going to happen. I'm going to save you from mm-hmm. dying in a fireball in this plane. I'm going to save you from being mortified at dinner with your family. I'm going to save you from uh, embarrassing yourself in front of everybody at work. You know, and so you're going to pass this presentation off to your colleague. You know, whatever it is, it's what's called a safety behavior. Your brain says you're going to do this other thing, and look, the bad thing doesn't happen to you. The problem with that logic, though, is that it might have been okay anyway. Maybe you can go to the party. Maybe you can sleep in the dark without a nightlight. Maybe you can drive. You know, even if one at one point, say, you, you hit a deer in the road and it was really, really rough um, and, and traumatic. These are things that you can do, but you have to actually teach your brain through, uh, through a process that we can go into. But you basically have to teach yourself this is actually okay by not avoiding, by not doing the safety behavior. And by recognizing that even though those symptoms of panic feel super intense, they feel super present and tangible and dangerous, recognizing, I like to call it really bad heartburn, where Mm -hmm. it feels awful, but it means nothing, really, in the grand scheme of things. And if you treat it that way, what eventually happens is it gets better. Anxiety as a whole is like those finger traps, you know, where you've got like one finger in each side and the more you try to pull out 
the tighter it squeezes. Yeah. That's how anxiety works. The more you're like, I can't feel this way. I can't feel this way. This can't be happening. Then the more it will. But almost paradoxically, if you lean into it, you Mm -hmm. say, okay, my heart is racing. I, my limbs are tingling. I have this intense urge to not leave my bed or my room and to stay in the fetal position. If you can (laughs) look at that and say, and I know why this is happening. Mm-hmm. The way that eventually it doesn't is I show myself that I will not tank my speech. I will not embarrass myself at work. I will not crash my car. I will not die on this airplane. You know, whatever the more irrational fear is that, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm feeling panic, I can't blank. You have to use real world evidence to push back against that. Mm-hmm. And now we'll stop talking because I've been going on for like 10 minutes. No, now. no, no. That's <laughs> super, super interesting. And you know, obviously, that's the more extreme case of anxiety, but it is something that I've experienced. So I just wanted to, if anyone else is feeling that, I know how bad it is and how physical it can feel. On the, you know, more generalized, oh my God, I don't know how to go to this party and not be socially awkward and talk to people or my God, going to this dinner with my extended family is going to be really hard or just overwhelmed. I don't know how I'm going to get all of this done. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Does breathing really help? Or is there more thing? I mean, you know, you think it through, you rationalize it, you look at, you know, how true your your thoughts are. Like, what are what are the steps someone should go to? Well, that's it's funny you mentioned breathing because it is actually far and away one of the best tools that most of us have i know some folks some listeners you might struggle to breathe and if that's the case then um there are other ways to get there but if you can breathe particularly without pain uh, this is a really handy tool and the reason for that is as strange as it sounds like how does breathing help we will talk about it there's a way to breathe that helps and there's a way to breathe that doesn't but uh, when you breathe through your diaphragm you do true deep breathing. It is actually the only way we know to turn on what's called your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your body, it's the part of your nervous system that calms you down. 
There's lots of ways to fire up your sympathetic nervous system. That's the part of your nervous system that gets you all amped up, that gets you all worked up. You could think about something stressful, for example. Well, you can just with your mind get yourself riled up. But to calm down, this type of breathing is how you do it. And so the way you breathe through your diaphragm is uh, you, ideally you want to be sitting in a, or laying down, either one works, but in a position where you don't have to hold tension in your core or in your back. So a lot of times when I do this with my patients, we'll be leaning back into a chair, sometimes they'll opt to lie down. But you breathe in through your nose, and you can almost imagine inflating a balloon behind your belly button. Usually when I teach folks to do this the first time, I'll have them put their hand on their belly button so that they can really feel that go up. And you won't feel much movement in your chest and shoulders or see it either. A lot of times when people breathe, quote unquote, deeply, there it's all it's almost like hyperventilating, like, <gasps> you know, it's, it's very elevated in where mm-hmm. it's where it's sitting. That does nothing for you. If anything, that will actually make you more tense. But if you can get it go all to, to go all the way down into your belly, take that deep breath. Maybe just hold it for just a second and then let it out slowly through your mouth and really track that feeling of release because that's what the breathing does. It creates this gentle sense of tension and then you can really lean into this release of breath and just sink into that. And just doing that alone for about five minutes, honest to goodness, can make you feel better. If you layer on some extra levels though, like say uh, timed breathing, like say box breathing, where you breathe in into your diaphragm for a count of four, you hold it for a count of four, you let it out over a count of four, and then you wait for a count of four, and then you repeat that for say four or five minutes. That also can help. Or if you breathe that way while you're doing mindful meditation, that's like hitting all the different calming elements that really can help. Now it may not short circuit, say a full on panic attack, like, uh, some like like alcohol might that might have been why some people might have been doing it because it just numbs you out breathing doesn't work that way what it does do though is it will bring your anxiety down most of the time i'm going to say like 90 95 of the time it will help um, maybe not all the way but it will help and show you how to de-escalate but then it also gets better with practice and that's another one of the biggest differences between drinking and sustainable healthy coping skills is that they take time to build up an effectiveness and you have to stick with it. So mm-hmm. for the same reason that we've been talking today about all these situations that cue you to want to drink, you've conditioned yourself to be like, oh, I'm sad, I drink. Oh, I'm happy, I'm celebrating. It's New Year's, I drink. You can do the same thing with breathing if you practice it at times when you're not already super anxious because then what starts to happen is you teach your body when i breathe into my diaphragm i chill out and even if it normally takes you like say four or five minutes to get there when you practice it enough from the very first couple breaths your brain's going to be like oh i know what this means when i do this i feel better but there's no shortcuts to this you have to repeat it and that's part of why practicing or meditating daily keeping that up for a couple months the benefits actually increase over time, which is the opposite of alcohol, where the benefits decrease over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. You know who I do box breathing often. That's usually what I do when I feel really anxious or my mind's racing. And 
my daughter actually taught it to me when she was eight years old. Like she grabbed her, you know, my phone and went to YouTube and was like, mom, you should do this. So we did it together. It just blows my mind. Yeah. Well, and the best part about it too, and, and listeners, if you haven't tried this, I wholeheartedly recommend it. You can go on YouTube and, and type it in and you'll find some guided ones. I have a, I think a instructional quote unquote video on my channel as well. It's more of just like an audio recording, but it can make a profound difference in a very short amount of time. And it's part of why I like to use this technique with folks who have, maybe it's your first time in therapy. You haven't done this sort of work before because it immediately, it, it just, tends to help pretty quickly if you are truly breathing into your diaphragm because it's like a biological mechanism where for most people, most of the time, it's not 100%. Most people, most of the time, you're going to feel better if you do it. And mm -hmm. so there are so few of these types of interventions where you can get that really quick experience, like this, the quick win. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. wow, I just did that for like five or 10 minutes and I actually feel a little bit better. Like when we're talking about these patterns that you get in, you know, you fall into in childhood and then carry into adulthood, like that's going to take some work in therapy. And even when you come to the epiphany of like, oh, I'm the fixer or, oh, I'm super sensitive to everybody's emotions because that's how I kept myself from getting yelled at as a kid. Like, okay, that still then takes some time to, to do something with and to actually benefit you. Mm -hmm. Like awareness is the first step, but with breathing, with meditation, you can actually get some benefits pretty early on, which is pretty nice. With meditation, I am not a big meditator. What's your favorite strategy to suggest for a beginner? So I'm a huge fan of mobile apps for this. And mm. that's because guided meditations help a tremendous amount. The app that I, I recommend, uh, disclosure, I am not being paid by, by them, <laughs> is 10% uh, happier. Dan Harris, 10% happier. They teach it the right way. Um, Science-based, really good. Probably my second place would be Headspace. They also do a lot of good science-based meditation in there, and they've got a lot of resources there for kids. But what's helpful about guided meditations is that you will have a voice to help bring you back to your anchor point. So, so when you meditate, very common misconception about meditating is that you're supposed to clear your mind. You can't do that. That's not how the brain works. You will get distracted. Meditation, and part of why it's so useful for working with anxiety is about watching your mind and seeing that your brain and your thoughts and your feelings are not you. You are a consciousness that sees this happening, that can see it happening, and can also get wrapped up in it. But that is not you. You are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. And so when you meditate, what you do is you focus on an anchor point, like the feeling of breathing into your diaphragm, which feels awesome and super relaxing most of the time. But it's also actually pretty boring. And so what happens when you meditate, I mean, let's be honest, right? It's breathing. And so your brain jumps without your consent. And so what happens then is when you notice like, oh man, like I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about the holidays. I'm thinking about drinking. I'm thinking about family. You know, it's like waking up. It's like seeing, oh man, my brain just carried me away to anxiety, to work, to restlessness, to judging, whatever it is. And then you kind of mentally put it down. You can't like get rid of it. That's not how thoughts work. Um, but you can kind of like place it. I like to imagine either it being like the thought is a little box that I put in my lap or down by my feet. And then come back to that really relaxing feeling of breathing. Mm -hmm. And then you get distracted again. And then you come back again. And then you get distracted again. And 
You can think of meditating almost as like being a gym, going to the gym for your brain. You're training the skill of mindfulness when you do mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness is being able to be aware of the present moment to see it happening rather than be carried away by it. And so when you, when you flex that, when you strengthen that, which does take some time and work, you'll start to notice sooner when you're getting carried away by a thought or a narrative, a story you're telling yourself, a feeling. And then when you can see that, that empowers you to go a different way. Mm -hmm. So that was a very long explanation for recommendations I'd give beginners. No, but I guess, yeah, yeah. I think it's very helpful. And I also think like going into your first holiday or any stressful situation, sort of practicing that in advance would really help. What mm -hmm. do you see, you know, in your work as the most common family stress that people experience around the holidays? Well, I'd say it's, it's one of a couple options. One is just if there's some like family beef, right? If, if you're not getting along with another member of the family or someone's partner or something like that, having to be in the same space as them can be very tense or not wanting to go and be in that same space, but feeling pressured to do so. I'd say that's probably one of the most common. The other I'm hearing more and more recently uh, is political differences. Like yeah. we've gotten so polarized as a country that I, families, I mean, I don't want to be over dramatic about it, but it can make very stressful if you have very different political views because of how, how we tend to demonize people who have different political views than us. Uh, you know, as, as, a, as a country right now, there's just a lot of that going around. Or, or if, if something happens in a moment, and again, you feel like you can't keep yourself emotionally safe. I think those would probably be the most common that I hear about. Mm -hmm. And your suggestions on dealing with that? I mean, I know we've talked about it a little bit in advance, but yeah. Yeah. Well, so ultimately, ultimately what it comes down to is feeling, if you come into a situation feeling prepared and empowered, your stress will be vastly reduced. So when we talk, so we started off today talking about how preparation is the most important part. So what preparation looks like is one, lowering your baseline level of stress. If you already know, you tend to run hot. So that means if you haven't say, tried diaphragmatic breathing. If you haven't tried mindfulness meditation, maybe give it a go. Um, I don't know exactly when this podcast is going to air, but assuming we have a, at least a little bit of time before a holiday yeah. hits, yeah. you've got a little bit of a lean-in, um, and so uh, a lead-in rather, and that means that you have some time to hopefully just lower that baseline level of stress so that when you get hit with a new stressor, it doesn't push you over the top and you know when you start to fall apart a little bit. So that would be one part of planning. The other is to know in advance. You don't want to. You don't want to cast too far. You don't want to predict bad things happening. You know, that comes with some risk, uh, different risks to your mental health. But if you can just be re realistic about it and say, okay, so this has happened a lot. This is the personality of this person, or this is the family dynamic that I've been in, or this is this person's political views that they're probably going to spout off. How do I want to handle it in a way that I respect myself and be respectful of them? Because ultimately, that dynamic where two people even if they have differences of opinions or values or beliefs, can be respectful of each other and their boundaries. That's like the holy grail. That's where you mm -hmm. want to get to. And so being able to say in advance, think, okay, so if I'm in an environment this holiday season that I don't feel like my boundaries are being respected, 
or where I am being disrespected, how do I want to handle that in a way that I feel good about later? I feel like I've been true to myself and my values and where I don't have to debate whether or not it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many different permutations of where tensions can arise, right? Like we can't predict everything. But if you have a process where you know where your boundaries are, you know how you're going to respectfully hold them and, you know, have distance if you need to have distance or ask assertively, but not aggressively for something if, you know, you need to need to do that, then hopefully when you enter into that situation, if you choose to do so, you can feel a little bit more settled. And then when you're there, if something goes sideways, you can flex some of those skills, whether or not it's putting on that empathy or curiosity cap. And instead of thinking like, like, man, uh, why is Uncle Fred such an asshole? Um, instead, you're thinking, hmm, you know, this is a problem that he has. Do I want to tolerate it? <laughs> Do I want to take some space? Do I want to correct him publicly in front of everybody else? I mean, all the options are on the table. Um, or you could even say, you know, like, I'm going to try this. And no matter what, I'm not going to make a scene. But if this is as bad as I think it might be, uh, you know, maybe this is the last time I'm going to do this until this changes because it really puts me on the spot. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I, I'm going to give, I, I'm going to give permission to do this one more time and to give it a chance, but maybe not again after that. Well, what, whatever the mindset is, just knowing in advance what feels in line with the person you want to be, the daughter you want to be, the, you know, the, the partner you want to be, whatever the role is, just try to honor that. And then afterwards, look back on it and say, did this feel right? Or as I said before, it might not feel right, but with whatever frame feels like this is my values. Did you (laughs) feel like you could do it? And then if you need to do it differently next time, do it differently next time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And what I would add just from my experience and, and women I've worked with is to expect that you will need a lot of alone time to decompress and not get overwhelmed. So plan more of that, plan more of that space into your life than you have before, whether that means turning down a few things, shortening visits. Um, I always like telling people, hey, one of my goals for this vacation is X. So I'm going to try to do that every day, whether X is take a walk every day or read two novels. So I'm excited to read these in bed early at night or in the afternoon. My goal is to go to this park. I mean, pick some things that will get you away from people or at least moving outside or some alone time and just state it right off the bat so that otherwise people will fill up every free moment you possibly have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, what strikes me as you talk about that, like uh, alone time, being calm, again, coming to a place of rest feels simple, but so we so often don't do it, you know, or like we brush it aside and be like, Oh no, I I don't have to take this time to be alone. Or I don't have to take this time to meditate or to breathe or to sleep. That would be another big one. If we're talking about stress management, like make sure you're getting your rest. But it's that sort of thing where you might be blown away at the difference in the quality of your life if you're going from like five hours of sleep a night to seven hours of sleep a night. And you'll see immediately how big of a difference that makes on your edginess or your caffeine consumption or, you know, any any number of different things. Lifestyle changes really can make a big difference 
But like we mentioned, they, they sometimes take a little bit of time. But if you really stick with it, you might look back and say, wow, like I really did handle that better. And it didn't take like doing some grand, massive change to everything. It just actually took caring for myself. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, The Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. Yeah. Having boundaries. And that's a great thing as well to be like, hey, one of my goals on this break or this vacation or this trip is to catch up on sleep, you know, and so that way when people are drinking in the end of the evening, you're you can leave without them wondering if you're offending them or anything else because it's a stated goal. Um, the other thing I would suggest is always bring your own non-alcoholic drinks. So either to a party, mm. stock up your house, or you can ship stuff. Like I know my favorite non-alcoholic beer and sparkling non-alcoholic Prosecco or kombucha. You can literally ship stuff through Amazon Prime to people's houses um, and then have an exit plan. So if you're going to parties, talk with whoever you're going with that you might want to leave early and either they can Uber home or they can agree to leave with you or you can take two cars. Just knowing that sometimes all you need to do is show up a little late, make two rounds and take off and people may or may not notice. That's a fair point too, right? We we tend to feel like there's a spotlight on us when in actuality, like people don't really notice. They're focused on their own life and, you know, the time they're having. But you also made a really important point about not doing it alone and to have somebody there with you, either the exit strategy or just someone to hold on to, someone to help level you out. 
we so for so many things in life, if we have a partner with us in it, it works better. And yeah. sobriety, going through difficult situations to someone there, not even to just like, quote unquote, keep you from drinking, but just to be a support and to, yeah. to help, you know, remind you of who you are and what you value and that someone values you for the right reasons, perhaps, yeah, um, could make a tremendous difference. Yeah, I, I find even just being like, hey, I'm going to this party and it may be hard for me. So will you help me out? Like with my husband in early sobriety, that helped a lot, even though he was drinking, even though he didn't necessarily think that I needed to stop drinking, you know, hopefully your partner, or your best friend, or anyone you know, who may or may not be drinking. Um, sometimes it's just a pregnant person who you know, who's going to the same party being like, all right, I'm not drinking at this party. It's probably going to be hard for me want to hang out by the whatever thing that can help a lot. Every person in, in early recovery needs that that pregnant friend, right? <laughs> it's like go with it's like, it's like well, walk along the streets until you find someone who can't. No, I'm I'm I've joked, but that that's a really good point, right? And and feeling like you have, if nothing else, also you know the the I, the thought that comes to mind that I know helps so many folks also is uh, just being seen, and a, a little more harsh word is accountability, but. Just having someone there with you to be able to be like, yeah, like, I know what you're shooting for. I'll be there for you. I'll be there with you. Um, you don't have to be alone. You know, I've got your back. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to mention is even if you don't have anyone in person in your life, there are tons of people that are out there in Facebook groups. Um, I have a membership with my course. But there are also a ton of free groups of people doing the same thing. And so even posting a picture of yourself all dressed up going to my, okay, my first alcohol free, you know, party, holiday party, and then post midway through. I mean, everybody will tell you you look fantastic, which is awesome. And then when you finish that you're a badass, you can co complain about your uncle. They don't know him. So you can be like, this is a nightmare. My mother said X. But just knowing people who get that this is really hard can be wonderful. Oh, yeah. Community is everything. And it's so wonderful to, to hear that the vibe that you have in your course and in your community. And it's totally true. I mean, when you not, not just have like one person who has your back and who's walking through this with you, but a whole group of people, we tend to the, the mannerisms and habits and values and behaviors of the people that we surround ourselves with in person, but also virtually tend to rub off on us. And so if you've got that healthy community around you where you can be open and you can cheer, be cheered on and cheer other people on, oh, it, it, it means so much. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, tell us more about your work, you, where people can follow you and find out more. Oh, yeah. So I'm an addiction psychologist. I pri primarily actually speak and educate for a living. I've, I've got a passion for trying to get the information that we we learn as clinical psychologists, but also that's always coming out in in uh, in, in journals, in medical journals that that no one ever really reads, but is really <laughs> good information. I well, seriously, I mean, it's 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 just a sad it's a sad truth, and I'm not yeah. not afraid to say it. There's so much good work that is just walled away in academia that people are that they deserve to be heard. It deserves to be read. 
And I like to be that translator. And so I spend a lot of time speaking across the country and doing webinars, talking about mental health and very much addiction, a lot around teen wellness, teen health, mm-hmm. vaping, THC, marijuana. Those are, those are big ones as well or big concerns across the country right now. Because I think that knowledge and prevention and going a little bit further uh, upstream, like imagine, I, I just know for myself, you know, I, I, full, full disclosure, I've dealt with anxiety for most of my life. And let me tell you, I wish that I'd started doing breathing and uh, meditation before the age of 30, which is when I finally figured out what actually works for me. Like, man, it would have been great for, you know, 15 or 20 years prior to that. Yeah. that I was struggling with all these things. And so I feel like if I can give that to people earlier on, that just does a tremendous benefit for the world. And so my website is winerphd.com. Um, social media wise, I post constantly on LinkedIn. That's, that's where I live most of the time because I found that people, people are nice there. Um, and so, <laughs> and, and very, and, and very, uh, very, very chill, nice professional. Uh, so that, that's where I, I post most of the time, but I also have a podcast of my own. I have a YouTube channel where I post some analysis. Uh, and then I also have a private practice where I see some folks clinically. Uh, but that's a bit smaller scale, but. Anyone who has a question, I always recommend, like, you can always email me. I will write you back. Um, I have not gotten to the point where I don't answer literally every email I receive. So if anyone ever has a question, f- please feel free to drop me a line. Uh, it's on my website, but also it's just Aaron at winerphd.com. Awesome. And I will put all your links in the show notes for this episode so people can check out your YouTube channel and your podcast. I think um, it's really helpful to get your expertise on how to manage stress and anxiety during this time period. So hopefully everyone listening to this can focus on the good and really, really enjoy the holidays, but also have some tools in their back pockets for those moments that they know is going to be either a challenge not to drink or stressful dynamics. We all have them even if it's just being overwhelmed by the list of things you want to do and the number of invitations you have or loneliness. Therapy is a fantastic tool and so is breathing and meditation and, and expecting what might be hard. Yeah. And I, I guess this part, a parting thought I just want to put out there. One, you've got this. You can have this. You can do it. The anxiety. Anxiety and so many other problems that we might experience in our life comes from the system that we, just our, our daily system, the way we deal with stress and family and work and all of that. If you change the system in healthy ways, like stopping drinking, like breathing, like meditation, like working with a therapist, like taking time to relax and to calm down, like having that, that loving or supportive person next to you, like you suggested, um, those make a difference and they add up and they grow in strength over time. So if you've been feeling disempowered, if you've been feeling like you can't do it, just know, and I say this as a professional who helps people do this all the time from addiction to trauma, to anxiety, to depression, there are solutions. And we've talked about some really good ideas today to get the ball rolling, but you've got this. This is totally possible. It's going to be a great holiday. All right. I love that. Thank you so much. That's the perfect place to end this. So thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. 
from ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.